Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm your host, Nick Seipel. Joining me today is Molly Fool analyst, Ben Ra. Our special guest today is Ray Ma. Ray is an expert in Chinese consumer technology with a background in venture capital and private equity in China. Today, she serves as a co-host of the Tech Buzz China podcast. Ray Ma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So we were talking uh, before the show about your background in China, how you've come uh, to develop an expertise in this space. Can, can you share that with our listeners and maybe give us a little pitch uh, for the Tech Buzz China podcast? Yeah, sure. As I was saying, uh, I was in China from 2007 to 2015. So for eight years, full-time working in investing across some multiple industries, but primarily in tech and was lucky to be there while the um, you know tech ecosystem really grew in the early 2010s. Uh, for Tech Buzz China, it's just a recent, you know, two years ago, I started this podcast to fill what I saw was a gap in um, tech coverage of Chinese companies. And it was primarily to scratch my own itch uh, and then also help my friends understand. But basically what we do is we don't focus exclusively on public equities, but we do um, talk quite a bit about large companies and so sort of very late stage startups. And we try to give perspective on uh, headline news, what we say headline news that don't always make into English language coverage. So I think we were, for example, the first some of the first people to talk about like the rise of e-cigarettes in, in China and uh, a bunch of other topics. Yeah, so, so just off the bat, as we dive into to Chinese tech, just, just broadly from an American perspective, why would you say it's important to understand Chinese technology and, and the companies coming out of that uh, sector today? I think that for, so I think just, I prepared some stats uh, basically about how China and US um, are different, but I think everyone probably pretty pretty much knows that China is a very large market. What many people might not realize is how digital it is, especially in um, consumer internet, right? So enterprise software, it lacks quite a bit, but in consumer internet, the penetration of um, smartphone devices, you know, we have like almost a billion devices over there. And then also um, e-commerce, depending on which stat you look at, it's between 25 and 40% of, of, of retail, of total retail is e-commerce, which is higher than the US even post COVID. Um, and it's just very, I think, hard for people to um, who haven't been there to recognize that it's a mobile first, highly digital and very large economy that also um, in the past 10 years because of uh, government encouragement and also just because of growth of economy, you, you also have a lot of talent and a lot of capital. Uh, so there's really interesting innovations coming out of China now. I actually, when I left in, at the end of 2015, I still felt like it was still lagging Silicon Valley, but I think now it's pretty obvious in sectors such as e-commerce and digital entertainment. I think these are the two uh, specific sectors in which China actually has some really interesting innovations. Uh, some would call them, some people say that they're leading. I would just say that they're different and there are lessons that the, the West could potentially learn. Yeah, this point of how, how Chinese technology companies are, are different and how Americans try to understand them. I think we hear this all the time of Americans will describe Chinese businesses as the, the blank American business of China. So you've got the Amazon of China, the Google, the Google of China, the Tesla of China, uh, that sort of thing. How useful are those descriptions actually in understanding these Chinese businesses? I think that <laughs> it's it's starting to be of more and more of limited use. Actually, I, I just tweeted, like, I think last week about how um, one of the companies that we might discuss today, Bike Dance, the owner of TikTok, and about how Neil Shen, who's probably, you know, the, the VC with the biggest Midas touch in China, he's the head of Sequoia Capital China. And in an interview, he said that like he did not invest in ByteDance because ByteDance couldn't position itself as blank of, the, of China uh, because it was not following a Silicon Valley precedent. And then he said that he learned his lesson after he saw the company succeed and realized that, hey, like actually, um, you know, I, I shouldn't be sticking to the old thinking of, you know, only uh, investing in, you know, what we call clones or copycats. So I think that uh, 
that is starting to be more and more the case. And then, of course, like Pinduoduo, I think is one of the companies that we'll be discussing today. And similarly, it's very difficult to pin down an um, American analog or even, even a combination of analogs is, is hard. So, uh, Ray, so um, for the American investor, because, you know, we look at China a lot, but, um, you know, we've had some experiences with companies like Luck and Coffee, which, you know, I believed in at one time. I heard that, you know, a lot of Chinese people on the street considered it like a stock for like dumb Americans. And uh, this is something that I heard recently. So how important is it to like actually be on the street and know what's going on in China? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we did a whole episode on Luckin, and it was interesting to see its coverage in the U.S. media. And then, of course, um, in, in case there are anyone in the audience who don't know about this uh, stock, it was basically a really, really big fraud. So made up all of its, substantially all of its revenues. Um, I'm not sure that if you were just visiting China, you would have necessarily, or, or even lived there or talked to people there regularly, would have necessarily known it was a fraud because I think that in itself was still a surprise to many Chinese people. I think what the, if you had a better understanding of the market, you probably might've just been more aware, right? And, and might've been more like, um, I think if you read Chinese coverage of the company, a lot of people were just more skeptical of the products they were rolling out, right? Because um, it's it, it would just have been more obvious to you if you were culturally fluent that like actually milk tea is a much bigger market, uh, but it has a lot of competitors. So when you know they they started launching these like vending machines and um, new tea products, you could much more easily. Uh, compare it to the competition and be like, oh, that's not actually competitive and that's just PR or, or, or you know, basically have more context. So I would not say that in, in that in the case of that company, you know, everyone in China knew it was a fraud or anything. Mm. Um, but I do think there was there definitely was a lot of discussion. Like people were like, why do Americans love this company so much? <laughs> it must be because they like coffee. <laughs> so that yeah. there was a little bit of that. Like there was confusion. I think in China, why why this was such a high flying stock? But you know, let's let's not like also paper over the fact that people people in China didn't know it was a fraud either. So I I think like one of the reasons is because we think of China as this growing economy, and obviously you know economy in that situation, you kind of want to get at businesses that are in consumer goods, uh, things that people um, actually buy. And I think in China, the market now, I mean, there's this IPO of the semiconductor company, for example, SMIC. It's kind of a different focus uh, than here. Like, I think the government plays a bigger role. So the companies that are sort of seen as being endorsed by the government seem to have um, more popularity, at least in the market. How important is that link with the government? How do you think about that? Because, you know, it is a closer relationship. There are, you know... And we, we consider the Communist Party here as like, you know, the worst thing in the world. I know it's much more complex than that, but all of these companies do have links uh, with the Communist Party in terms of their employees being members, members and all that. How do you think about that interplay between government and, and business? Yeah, so I think for the most part, um, so I, I worked in real estate investing my first two years in China, and then that's it's very obvious that having good government relations is, is crucial to your business. In fact, that might be the single most important factor over everything else. I think, uh, and, and then I also did some media investing, and that is also um, also a very big factor. Uh, and media is a protected industry, so so again, it's very different. But like when it comes to digital companies and, you know, technology and internet companies, what I found, and I, you know, confirmed with many other people, just in case it was just, you know, not my own private experience, which is that in general, the government actually um, is not very involved until the company is much bigger, in which case, uh, it's, 
a lot of it is actually just people trying to take credit. Right? So like the, every district and city is like, hey, I was the one who incubated Alibaba. You know, I, you know, give me some credit for bringing all these jobs and you know, upgrading my my economy to a service economy, a knowledge worker economy here in, in my district. Um, I think that with when it comes to um, companies that have contents on it, for sure there are local regulations where um, you know. It's basically self-censorship and moderation is highly important. Uh, we've seen companies, even public listed companies, uh, have their uh, apps taken off of app stores in China because they violated something or another, right? Um, and a lot of times it's not clear what the violation was. Um, so I think in that sense, uh, for internet companies, that is typically what I see as the sort of relationship with the government that they, um, the government will come in and regulate you. And there's always the fear that you may have triggered something and, and you get like, you get taken off of app stores, which is, which is horrible. Um, it is quite different from the, the case that you're talking about, which is SMIC, uh, that is very different. I think so. The semiconductor industry is one where China like greatly lags behind, um, you know, the U.S. and Japan and whatever. So that is also a very capex intensive industry, um, and the government has allowed announced this like seventy billion dollar you know, what they call big fund into the industry. Uh, and, and everyone in China can see sort of the trade tensions that's um, hinging on, upon protecting the, you know, on the U.S. side of protecting the semiconductor IP. So, so I think in that case, it's, it's actually quite different. I would say in general, in internet, what you really have to think about is like changing rules, right? Like um, gaming, gaming regulations and, you know, um, approvals not being approved for companies like Tencent that depend on government approvals before they can monetize. Uh, and uh, of course, when it comes to content companies, the, the, the risk of overstepping some kind of boundary and then, and then effectively getting, getting temporarily banned is, is often um, the case. Yeah, so I, I want to get into more of the uh, the content uh, issues later on in the show. I know we're, we're going to spend some time uh, talking about TikTok, but, but you mentioned uh, the lag of Chinese technologies in the semiconductor space and comparing and contrasting that uh, with the internet. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about is a common narrative you'll hear in the U.S. around Chinese technology is that Chinese companies don't innovate, they're fast followers, IP theft, that sort of thing. To what extent is that narrative valid? Is it more true in some sectors than others? Can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah, I mean, I think... Like the, uh, when I was working there and I represented, for example, um, you know, media companies, there was always like um, some kind of issue going on of, of IP infringement, et cetera. I think overall it's gotten better. Uh, a lot of it because domestic businesses are now defending their IP, right? Uh, but how much better? Well, I saw, um, I was reading this dispute between, um, I guess people on Twitter talking about IP in defense in China versus the US. And I went and looked up the stats and it's true that like in general, right, even the highest uh, IP infringement in China, like did not get the kind of payouts that you see here in the US. But I don't know if that's necessarily indictment of the Chinese system. And may maybe it's just because we're really litigious here. <laughs> so, um, so, but, but what I can say is um, I think generally IP rights are rising. It's probably not, still as good as the, the US, um, but I think it's greatly improved from the impression that many people have, which is like, there is no IP protection. And I don't think that's any that's true anymore. Um, that being said, I think in general, um, a lot of, if you're talking about sort of copying um, product design, for example, if you see just the amount of fur that people, um, the, the amount of talk, right, that came about when in, you know Facebook uh, Instagram copied Snapchat, for example, right? It's like, they'll never live that down, right? But in China, that's just not a big thing. People are just like, oh, you know, innovation, um, that, that's an interesting product feature. I'm going to put it in my, in my product. In fact, what you'll see is that, you know, maybe people will be putting into their products even when they shouldn't be. <laughs> so you'll see these bloated products with copying the best of uh, many other things. And I think culturally, it's just not, that's not considered a, a big problem. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily applauded, but it, it's not considered like 
thievery like it is here. And also I think what is something that to, to think about is uh, in China, I would say, yes, you see product innovations on, like I said, e-commerce and, and digital entertainment, but also overall, I think there, there should be a distinction between um, fundamentally novel technologies and then um, innovations in the application of the technology. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that basically like the U.S. still leads, it seems for the most part, especially in AI and all these other uh, and semiconductors, et cetera, and fundamental research. But I think China um, has a lot of strengths also in applying some of the technologies once it's released into the wild, right? So because there's also, um, there's also value in that, right? You could be the first person to discover something, but you could be also the first company to apply it at scale. And those take different competencies and of course have different values, I guess, to, to the investor. Uh, an example I like to give is like when, um, this is an old, old example, but when I was doing technical diligence for proposed investment and peer-to-peer -peer, uh, sharing, video sharing in, in China, this is over 10 years ago, um, you know, the consultants we, we picked were, were, West, were based in the U.S. and were Westerners, and they basically said, well, this technology is obviously not, like, very novel, but the fact that the company you're looking at could support the number of concurrent users it could, just because China is a huge market, um, really shows that this company does have some core technology, right? They didn't develop peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, but they were really good at applying it. And I think that might be more of the um, quote-unquote innovations um, that you see from, from China, the scaling up. Right. When you talk about the, these kind of applications, innovations, that brings me to the, one of those companies you mentioned earlier, Pinduoduo, which I want to talk about a, a little bit here. I mean, this is a company founded in September 2015. Five years later, it's one of the three biggest e-commerce companies in China. And it is one of these companies that defines the blank of China definition. So for folks who aren't familiar with this business, how would you describe Pinduoduo to an American? Yeah, well, as you noted in your notes, the the prospectus describes it as Costco meets Disneyland, which I always thought was very weird. Uh, but but like, I think what they mean is uh, Pinduoduo is basically this um, app where you go in and the primary, I would say the primary value proposition is that things on it are cheap. Um, that has several implications. It's cheap because basically um, a lot of the products are unbranded. Um, or, you know, yeah, so, which I don't think it's the same with Costco because I shop there and I shop like branded goods, but, um, uh, but like the idea is that you go in, you, you are pushed a lot of these deals and these deals obviously are very, uh, are different each time you log in and they try to personalize it and, and whatnot, but effectively you don't go in, um, typically primarily trying to search for something, you go in basically and you interact with the feed. That, that's the primary um, selling point where you're just like shown all these really, really cheap products. So I think in that sense, that's what the founder means by it's being, it's like Costco, because you go in, you know, Costco doesn't even mark its aisles. So, so you go in and you like wander the store and like buy whatever deals appeal to you at the time. Um, what's uh, another innovation it has is that it tried to use um, basically your social graph, your friends network uh, to do um, group buying purchases. So it used to be that you, you needed to get like tens of people to get a special price on a deal, right? So like the three of us, for, for example, could get a lower price if we bought together. Um, but Basically, that was a gimmick to, for it to really just acquire customers very quickly. And uh, it was able to do that because it was invested in by Tencent, and, um, who, who still owns about 17%, I think, of the company. And Tencent owns, as the audience probably knows, WeChat, a billion MAU um, super app in China. And so Pinduoduo was, was able to do that. And that's why some people call it social commerce. Although I really think the social element of it um, is quite limited by this point because they're at 600 million active buyers now. So they're sort of <laughs> limited, um, I think, you know, games they could play by like, oh, invite your friends to, to buy this with you together. Um, and then the, the final thing I think that um, Pinduoduo is really is really different about Pinduoduo that people might not realize is that it actually works very closely with suppliers 
Right. So like I said, a lot of the goods are unbranded and uh, Pinduoduo actually started off by this merger of a fruit selling platform and then a, a, ga a gaming company. So the idea is that it takes um, consumer insights from the buying data and inform suppliers on what to make. So they call that model C2M, consumer to manufacturer. And you, you see a lot more companies in China doing this. Uh, and basically the idea is that, you know, you, you take the consumer demand, you aggregate it, and then you're able to like pick out the most salient points and then inform the supplier, in fact, what to make. So in that way, you sort of have this virtual, virtuous cycle where the supplier doesn't have to wonder about what to make and how much to make, they already know. So it's much less risky for them. And, and hopefully that means uh, they can give you better pricing. And then this model just chooses itself even further. For me, it kind of exemplifies, yeah, like almost like the gamification of e-commerce where there's like this merging between entertainment and e-commerce or social media and e-commerce. You see the live streaming going on on uh, Taobao. And also I think on, on Binduando, they have a, a live stream uh, function now yep. where people could get on and show their product and you could buy it there immediately. Um, is that... I see that as being much, I mean, Facebook is trying to do it with Facebook shops. Um, so there's a little bit of that going on here in the U.S. And I think that's going to proceed here. Um, I feel that in China, it's much more advanced. Can you describe what that, what that world looks like in China, that sort of merging between entertainment, live streaming, social media, and the e-commerce? How does that work in China? Yeah, so I think... Uh, well, first of all, just the live streaming e-commerce, right? So a lot of people, I think Amazon also tried to do this. I, I watched a couple of their live streams and I found it to be very, very different from the experience in the Chinese apps, which is that, you know, um, a lot of the e-commerce live streamers, you have sort of two different types. One is actually selling their own goods, right? So these are literally farmers where they're just like live streaming on their phone, um, next to their crops. Like I watched one where there was this beekeeper and she was just like with her bees, you know, talking about her honey. Um, and then, uh, and then you have other ones who are sort of more polished. They are almost like entertainment stars where they're like really funny. They're really good at talking up the product and getting the energy up. Um, and then these people are selling other people's products primarily. So they have deals with a lot of like actually the very big brands, um, to sell things. And the, the, the biggest live streamers in China are actually of the second category, right? Like one lady, her name is Via. She's the top live streamer on Taobao. And just to give you some context of how big she is, the uh, GMV, not her own, her revenue is because she takes a cut of it, but the total amount of goods she sold in 2018 was equivalent to one of the top malls in, in Beijing, right? So it's like, <laughs> it's like take, take like a well-known mall, you know, and then that person sold that much um, in, in one year. And I think that um, the difference is like, yeah, it's, it's live streaming. You get into a room where there could be thousands of other people. You could gift and get attention from the live streamer, um, give them, you know, vir like stuff that you buy that from virtual currency. Uh, but the primary thing is that you can ask them questions and you can interact with them and you get the sense that uh, number one, you're more, connected with them. So maybe you start trusting them more like Via. She has a lot of fans who just really trust um, her recommendations, right? And that she's giving them the best price. But also, yeah, it is more entertainment in the sense that like a lot of these live streamers have really interesting personalities. Uh, and at least for me, you know, watching like a farmer sell their goods um, in their like house or in their field, right? Versus like looking at a shelf of fruit in the supermarket is a very different experience. So um, I think in that sense, it's still very different. Yeah. From, I think what the Western, what, uh, what the West is doing in terms of live streaming e-commerce, but that is definitely one of the areas in which I would say China is ahead. I mean, just looking at the amount of users who use it daily and the amount of GMV going through these platforms that is probably one of the fastest growing e-commerce segments in China. You mentioned earlier uh, the relationship uh, between uh, Tencent and, and Pinduoduo. Uh, they've built basically their entire business on top of WeChat. I mean, this is a nearly $100 billion business built inside another multi-hundred billion dollar 
business. Can, can you talk about these dynamics of, of building a business inside WeChat's many apps, how it works and how Pinduoduo specifically has exploited that to, to build their business? Yeah, so I think um, for WeChat, for those of you who don't understand it, it's, it's primarily a messaging app. Uh, while it has a social feed, a lot of it is based on the fact that it's really between, it should be between trusted people, right? So it's primarily between your close social network. And what Pinduoduo did was, number one, um, Tencent and Alibaba are nemeses in China, and they actively block each other's services from um, being accessible inside their own apps, right? So like actually if I had to send a Taobao link, for example, to someone inside of WeChat, you have to give like this special code. It's kind of weird to explain, but basically it's like as if, you know, you can't send, um, I don't know, Twitter links to through your Facebook messenger or something like that, right? So uh, you, you do sort of have to pick a side. Uh, very few companies have been able to get away with not picking a side. But what Pinduoduo did was just exploit that, right? So it said um, in the beginning, and it still does it now, but in the beginning much more so where they had a couple games, um, you know, like I said, group buying. So of course, maybe the default option is to go to your family and friends and be like, hey, I could buy this fruit for 16, whatever RMB a pound, but if we buy it together, then it's eight RMB. A lot of the deals actually give you significant cost savings if you just brought in other people. And then um, there were other games like you could uh, bring in your friends to uh, cut the price for you. So it was literally like this movement of like slashing the price. So each each friend you invited, you know, to do you a favor of like basically clicking on this link, slash the price for you. And then, you know, your hope is that it goes down to zero. Of course, it never does. <laughs> and then there were these even like lottery games, right, where um, everyone could put in a, a small money. It's almost a little bit like gambling, a small amount of money. Uh, and let's say it would, the price would be big. It'd be like an iPhone or something. But then if we um, all put in money, we all have like a chance to win. Um, so they did a lot of these gamifications where it was really easy because of the very social nature of WeChat, especially among close connections that um, people would like be like, yeah, that's cool. Sure, Ray, like, you know, you're my cousin or whatever. I will click on this link and just help you out. But what they did was then they basically installed the mini app by doing that action um, onto their, onto their uh, WeChat. And, and I think as you noted in the notes, basically Pinduoduo to this day has a lot um, of active users on WeChat, even though they have um, also their own standalone app. But I think the active number of users, it, it might still be higher in their WeChat mini program than um, in their standalone app. Well, I think that's been really impressive to me looking at their, their their data as well is not just, I mean, you see the social aspect about how customers can stumble across your brand, become familiar with it, you know, see an opportunity to save some money, but their retention rate, I mean, is that, is that I mean, just the social aspect of the platform being able to keep folks around once they get them in? How do you explain why their retention rate is so high? Because it's even better than, than JD and Alibaba's uh, retention. Um. I, okay, this just be my personal opinion, talking to lots of friends who use Pinduoduo. Uh, obviously, I don't use it here in the U.S. I have Costco. <laughs> but the the I think the a, a lot of it is just because the goods they recommend are sort of everyday items, right? So um, I think the, the one case study they put, you know, out very early on, and I think everyone in China knows about is like tissue paper, right? They just have these like very cheap consumable items where, um, you know, toothpaste, like what, whatever it is, that's actually just as high frequency buying uh, period. And number two is like, once you start getting used to the program and you are, you know, you're okay with like the, the feed and you know what you're looking for, or you um, are cool with being recommended items on the platform and you are okay with its quality, which by the way, is not the greatest because of the cost generally. So if you know, if you if you can accept that level of quality um, and the fact that it takes a little longer than many of the other e-commerce platforms or you're willing to put up with it because you want a cheaper price, then I think, yeah, it makes sense. It's not really as much the the social aspect because yeah, you they have games in there and stuff, but I don't think that is really what's driving the the sales. Um, another important point I think we didn't get to talk to uh, earlier, which is that in China you have the urban rich 
you know, who might lead very like lives that most of us might recognize here. They drink Starbucks and do intermittent fasting and, and whatnot. But then you have 1 billion people who live in much poorer places where the infrastructure is very different. Um, that's always, I said, one of the reasons why e-commerce is so advanced in China, because if you look at offline retail for most of, you know, non super urban China, it's very crappy. So uh, your experience of going into your store down the street is, is horrible. So you'd much rather, of course, buy things online. Um, and that is also a, in large part, Pinduoduo's initial customers. They were actually known as um, sort of like, Taobao, or they called it e-commerce for people outside the fifth ring. And outside the fifth ring in China is kind of like this concept of, you know, people who are not as rich, <laughs> not urban. Outside of the railroad yeah. tracks. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Something to that effect. Um, there's been some management, I don't want to say shakeups, but uh, going on with Pinduoduo uh, where Colin Huang, who's the founder CEO, is going to leave. I think he's already no longer the CEO, right? So, yeah. Um, in conjunction with what's going on with like JD.com, I kind of see uh, Richard Liu kind of taking a back seat. Yeah. Um, what's your take on like the, the management changes that are taking place in, in both companies? Is there something that we should be watching out for? Is this something that, um, is it possibly something that's across the board in China or, or just uh, unique to those two companies? Yeah, well, well, I mean, Jack Ma also did the same, although I guess his retirement was technically like 10 years in the making. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I unfortunately don't have personal insight into this, but I can tell you what I, some of the analyses I read, um, you know, of course, some people are a little bit skeptical or suspicious of the moves. And then there are other people who say, especially in the case of Colin, his good mentor, um, Duan Yongping, who is a very successful entrepreneur, um, Warren Buffett fan, actually brought Colin to his Warren Buffett uh, charity lunch uh, many years ago, um, is a guy who's dedicated his life to philanthropy and um, you know is mostly behind the scenes and an investor currently. Colin is on the younger side for doing that, but um, there are some people who think he's just merely following in his uh, mentor's footsteps. I, I, I don't know. It seems a little bit early given how <laughs> young his company is, just sort of five years old. Um, but at the same time that, uh, like, I guess he's had health issues in the past and, and maybe, maybe there are good reasons for him to do this. So that's that's the level of insight i have unfortunately yeah in any event you know pinduoduo fantastic uh business to watch i mean its growth has been incredibly impressive and we'll just have to see uh, where the company goes from here under uh you know with, with new management to him moving up to the chairman role um etc another company i wanted to talk about uh while we had you here is tiktok uh and bite dance i think that that's one clear example when you look at at TikTok, that's an app that went from a standing start at zero in 2016 to kind of like Pinduoduo today. I'd say it's one of the five most important social media apps in the world. And from my perspective, TikTok has been the first Chinese app that's, that's really succeeded and gone viral in the West. Even WeChat is used mostly by Chinese expats abroad. Uh, why has TikTok been so successful where other Chinese apps have struggled? Uh, okay, yeah, a couple of things. So I've spent a lot of time researching uh, by dance because I'm actually writing an ebook on, on the company. But basically, I would say um, a couple of things, right? So the company itself was very intent on going global from the very beginning. So if someone leaked their 2013, they were founded in 2012, someone leaked their 2013 um, board board deck and it basically was like we're going international <laughs> so from the from the very beginning the the entrepreneur um the founder Zhang Yiming has been very clear that like hey if we limit ourselves to China even though China is a huge market it's still after all only one-fifth of the world's population we can never be a company like Google Facebook etc right so uh, the idea that a lot of um, Chinese entrepreneurs of the past decade have is that when mobile internet came about, so while the PC internet era, the US was much further ahead, when it comes to mobile internet, everyone's sort of at the same starting point. Um, so if you want to, you know, if, if you want to build a global company, um, you can, and that's their mantra, right? Global from day one. Um, 
the reason why they're successful is, of course, they have this um, algorithm-driven engine that's not social graph-based. So they don't, you know, TikTok, for those of you who don't use it, is basically just skips over your social graph altogether. You don't need to have friends on the platform. You don't even need to know who you want to follow because the algorithm decides everything for you, right? Like the simple way to explain it is all the other content platforms prior to this, you go in and you tell the platform what you want to look for. Whereas uh, TikTok brings the content to you. So you go in and it's like almost a passive experience. Um, my friend Eugene Wei called it the sorting hat from Harry Potter, right? It kind of knows what you want and just feeds it to you. Um, and I think that that's, that's one reason why they were able to grow. But of course, like the, the, the reason why they were the first Chinese company to do so is number one, this algorithm um, driven engine is um, not as dependent on sort of cultural understanding um, of the of the population that you're trying to serve, right? And they were able to also capitalize on the um, huge surge in video uh, worldwide. But at the same time, I do have to give the credit, a t uh, sorry, give the company a ton of credit for really um, using local operations, right? That's something they're still in the process of trying to do more and more of. But if you look at their company structure uh, and staff versus a lot of the other Chinese companies. Um, culturally, they're much more decentralized. Um, they really empower local employees and um, the amount of like truly international talent that they've hired is I think substantially larger than many other Chinese tech companies. Uh, so you can see that they're really applying sort of a global management philosophy um, as well as they, it, you know, as well as they were lucky with this product that that can um, can glo go global and is has less friction, relatively speaking, um, to go global. Do you think they have any potential with uh, e-commerce? I know they've been trying for a while to integrate that into their platform. Do you think they'll do a good job there, or is it purely going to be short videos? Yeah. So um, the thing about well, are you talk you're talking about ByteDance, right? So ByteDance yeah. is a lot bigger than just TikTok, and and TikTok, in fact, its Chinese version, uh, Douyin, is much more advanced than uh, TikTok, and live streaming e-commerce being one of the main things that you could do on there. That's different. Um, so you can live stream already on TikTok, but um, live streaming e-commerce and but being able to buy things directly is, is still a different experience. Um, I think that for uh, Bike Dance, it's pretty obvious they're making this into their next big platform. So uh, in the beginning of 2019, they um, like, not restructured necessarily, but really put in a lot of resources and engineering talent into the live streaming platform. And that's because if you look at China, there is another um, short video platform called Show that is also quite big. So $25 billion-ish valuation. And unlike ByteDance, which gets substantially all of its revenues through advertising, Show actually does it through um, live streaming um, e-commerce and live streaming transactions, right? So that is uh, something that you can you can see that um, ByteDance is going after as well. Um, I think so far you can see from, we work with a big one lab, which is a uh, analytics alternative data platform in China. And you can see like e-commerce live streaming um, is just really blowing up everywhere. And Douyin is actually doing quite well. So I think that um, there is no doubt in my mind that that's one of the, you know, huge things there, huge verticals are going after and features and functionalities. But also, I am personally, I guess, pretty, pretty uh, bullish on their prospects there. Mm. Um, so I don't think we, we could get by without talking about the, uh, the uh, measures that the US government's taking against uh, TikTok and the worries that we have here that uh, the Chinese government can get access to this data. Um, what do you think about that? And how do, how do Chinese people on the street um, think about that, you think? Yeah, so I think that like the national security concerns that have been raised are definitely legitimate in the sense that like, yeah, I, you know, if, if an adversarial government has access to your citizens' data, that seems to be very problematic. Um, at the same time, I, I do think there are uh, various experts who have pointed out that that's not even if that's happening, we need a sort of broader legislation overall on how our data is treated because 
you know, there are all these advertising companies, for example, that are sort of freely selling our data uh, that basically uh, not just TikTok or whatever other, other, you know, many, many people are having access to. Um, I think that the, uh, for on the ground Chinese um, reaction. So I wrote about this a little bit. Um, I think you sort of can, can, use two words. Um, one is resignation and one is indignation. And I think they exist in equal measure. Uh, so for, you know, like most, most Chinese people, like, except for the trolls on, on Weibo, which is China's Twitter, right? So like most reasonable Chinese people are like, yeah, like, you know, our government also uh, limits um, the access of foreign companies or, or even domestic ones, but like heavily, um, you know, moderates, uh, let's call it censors, polices, whatever are the content on our internet and our access. So it's sort of inevitable or understandable, let's call it understandable that a foreign government would do the same. Um, at the same time, they think that there it, it is um, kind of sad, right, that this is happening and that, you know, in the case of TikTok, that like maybe, oh, sorry, in the case of TikTok, I think people are more understanding um, because of the, you know, Trump rally story and whatever. But in the case of, I think, WeChat, uh, a lot more people are just like, I don't understand why that's happening um, because it's so, you know, not widely used um, as Nick said, and it's also not a open content platform. In fact, it's quite closed. Um, so there is but, but there's a surprising amount of resignation um, and I think understanding actually that I had previously imagined. I thought people would be just like very up in arms, um, but there is a lot more people I talked to who are like, well, yeah, that's kind of, that might just be how it is um, with many countries going forward. Um, yeah. And we what about Huawei, which might with, be the more important with Huawei? Yeah. Well, more important with Huawei. Um, I think... Huawei is a little bit different. Um, and I think because of the nature of the business that it's in, like telecom equipment, um, and, and the fact that it's like people have, well, I think Huawei has, uh, relatively speaking, been less controversial in, inside of China in many ways. Uh, it's been around a lot longer. Um, ByteDance, by the way, is a very controversial company inside of China. A, a lot of the people who complain about like, oh, you know, all this our kids wasting their hours watching dancing and lip syncing videos. Uh, hey, you see, you hear the same exact complaints from parents and, and other people in China about, you know, Douyin. So, so um, I would say in that respect, it's actually um, not necessarily like the most loved company. Huawei tends to be less controversial because, um, you know, what are you complaining about? Like it's phones, right? Or, you know, no, not many people have experience with telecom equipment, for example. And so I think for Huawei, there is a lot more um, probably people who feel um, that the company was wronged. Yeah. Whereas ByteDance um, is far less, has far less support, I think, inside of China. So we're speculating here about the possibility of TikTok being acquired by, I don't know, Microsoft or by Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, I think some people say that I would probably go with the side that it's it's going to be a lot harder. Um, I think they're going to drag it out along a lot longer than people might uh, think. What, what's your feeling about that? What do you what do you think is going to happen there in terms of the possible acquisition of lawsuits? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm following this like anyone else. I think I, I have been talking to employees like inside the company and, and ex-employees, et cetera, about how they feel. Um, you know, well, I, so I don't have any inside information. All I know is that, like, um, ByteDance, I think, itself has put out this air, I guess, or, or a PR inside of China that this is not going to affect its business in the long run because revenue contribution-wise, um, international is still very, very, very limited. Um, last year, it was, like, um, you know, de minimis um, out of its something like $18 billion revenue pool, like the US contributed really not very much, nothing at all. And even this year, pre-ban, it was expected to only contribute half a billion dollars, which, which I think would be very optimistic at this point. Um, I think that for um, the, uh, um, the lawsuits that it's been threatening, um, 
you know, like it has to make some kind of move to protect its domestic stance because in China, again, there's so much criticism of the fact that like, oh, like, you know, and this is maybe misunderstanding of the U.S. system, but they're like, hey, Huawei put out all these sort of hard edged statements and defended itself really well. Like, what are you doing? TikTok, right? So, um, and I don't know if you saw, but TikTok actually finally came up with a website, tiktokus.info, where it, um, at least so far, seems to have taken one of the harder stances against media coverage and, and whatnot. Uh, U.S. government maybe um, put out basically an information site on, oh, we're, we're the good guys, we're being wronged here. So at least on that front, they have to put up some somewhat of a fight. It's setting a precedent, right, for not just themselves and maybe their future businesses, but also all other um, Chinese internet companies. Um, so I think, yeah, that that's probably going to happen more. Um, as for how long everything will take, um, yeah, I have no idea. I've been asking a lot of lawyer friends, but I don't think anyone really knows because it's this is such a special and unique case. Um, and, you know, we have an administration that put out these executive orders that basically has everyone flummoxed, right? Legal experts, um, company executives, no one really understands. In fact, um, I was just on a podcast with a UK media and one of the other guests was the guy who wrote uh, Jack Ma, uh, Alibaba, and he's an ex, uh, the house Jack Ma uh, built, and he's like a China internet expert. And he basically said something that I thought was really true, which is that the executive orders um, read a lot like Chinese draft law, extremely vague, and um, you just don't know what it means until more clarity comes out. So. Yeah, so I want to kind of conclude at a couple questions going away. The first, as you've talked about the, over the past several years, tensions between the U.S. and China, you know, bubbling over, con continuing to become more, more and more tense. If, if we assume current trends and policies remain in place or are enforced, and I know it's really hard to predict the future, but if we make that assumption, how do you think the landscape for tech companies in China looks different five years from now than it does today? Yeah, I just think that... Um it's going to be, it, it, yeah, like you said, it's going to be very, very hard to predict. But I know that in the near term, at least as of right now, right, it seems that Chinese companies have, um, and, and investors, right, because they are, after all, um, you know, the capital side matters, are far less interested in going into at least the Western market, of the U.S. market, than they were a few years back. And a lot more attention is being focused on um, internal domestic market you know, and, and like we said, Pinduoduo, for example, is one of those examples where you could build a $100 billion business just focused on rural consumers in China, right? So um, I think that is going to take up a lot more attention um, in the next few years because of the political tensions, but also because of the fact that there are, are viable opportunities there. Um, that being said, I think also there's going to be a lot more interest in um, the industries that the U.S. has come out with sanctions against, right? So semiconductors, I think, you know, pretty much everyone knew for the longest time that like China's really weak in semiconductors, but there was just no incentive to go there, right? When you have these other lower, uh, what, what do you call it, like lower lying fruit that you can um, you can go after, right? Go, why go after something so capex intensive and risky when you can go and you know build an app? Uh, but now I think there's going to be a lot more talent being um, interested in this business because they see a, a a true opportunity, right? This is like a captive market where uh, if you don't do it, you know, like uh, you know, other people um, now can't, right? So so now you can go after it as a domestic player. Uh, I also think the political tensions will probably result in some sorts of new alliances. Um, I'm actually pretty new to semiconductors, really didn't look much at it before, but just researching it for, um, you know, understanding more about China tech in, in general, I found that it's not just the US who's in this market, right? There's also Japan, Korea, Korea especially um, has incentive to um, cooperate with China because of its um, northern neighbor that it wants China to help keep in check, right? So uh, you might see different um, alliances um, like exist, whereas before it was uneconomical um, for a lot of these businesses 
to to do these things. But now that the um, some some markets are decoupling, then um, you're you're going to see other international players jump in and take advantage of the opportunity as well. Okay, and then and last question. You, you pay a lot of attention to China and developing businesses in that country. What's one Chinese company you're excited about that a lot of Americans wouldn't be familiar with? Um, yeah, so I think going back to just like tying it with uh, what we said earlier about like, for example, Pinduoduo, ByteDance, et cetera, these are innovations in entertainment and e-commerce. And especially for you know, Pinduoduo, because of its closeness with the supply chain, uh, a lot of its business model is really um, benefiting from that. I think another company that people don't realize is Chinese is this company called Shein. And actually, it's very low profile inside of China. Um, it's only started to get coverage recently because everyone thinks they're preparing for an IPO. Uh, but if you look at app, app stores, you'll see that they're like top shopping app in many, many different regions. And I think what's interesting about them is that this is a company that had uh, uh, the founding team started off uh, being in search engine optimization. So they're really good at using data to drive decision making. Uh, and what they've done is they've been um, able to collaborate with, you know, the supply chain they're located in southern China, the manufacturing supply chain for fashion in, in China, and they've been able to reduce turnaround time from design to um, shipping product um, to five days, right? So, and they've like, I don't know if they've perfected, but they're in the process of really optimizing um, using data-driven uh, marketing, right? Like literally putting photos out there of goods that don't yet exist. And then, um, making it and then getting feedback and then deciding whether or not to go all in on more advertising for that product. So I think that's just really interesting in terms of you can see big data and e-commerce. This is the dream, right? For, for every fashion uh, manufacturer out there to have no waste and to, to know exactly what you should be selling to whom and, and then sort of making it. So yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting company. So Shein, that's S-H-E-I-N? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So yeah, write, write that one down, folks. Uh, Ray, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. If folks want to check out the Tech Buzz China podcast, pay attention to your work. Where can they go do that? Oh, uh, very easy. We're on all the platforms. It's just Tech Buzz China, three words. Um, and you can also go to our website, techbuzzchina.com. Uh, so I have a newsletter and um, we're putting out a lot of sort of primary information on Bike Dance, if that's a company that you're interested in recently. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Ray Ma and Ben Ra, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.